Hi everyone. Before I begin this episode, I just want to let you know some changes are coming for the lip. From next year, this podcast is moving to a seasonal format. I'll give you more information at the end of this episode. But for right now, welcome to episode 18 of The Lip. So I breezed in there all full of bravado and asked for a couple of eggs of chook feed and all the rest of it and was thinking I'm getting away with this. And then the young guy at the counter says, oh, would you like me to put that in the car for you? And without thinking, I said, no, I'll be right. Because that's when he looked at me like the penny had suddenly dropped. And he thought, that's not, that's not how a girl would answer that. <laughs> it's impossible to know exactly when it all started. Rona Stace, that was her at the top of this track, knows it happened before she was born. Maybe it happened before conception in the reproductive cells of one of her parents. Maybe it was at the moment of conception. Or maybe it was in the minutes, hours and days directly after conception, when two cells became four, four became eight, eight became sixteen, dividing and dividing and dividing, until every last genetic instruction was in place to make a perfectly formed and utterly unique human being. Or maybe it happened later still, when Rona was the size of a small fig, somersaulting in her amniotic balloon, safely cocooned from the outside world, and blissfully unaware of the difficult future that lay ahead of her. Just like the mystery of life itself, Exactly when it happened, and exactly why it happened, is a question that may never be fully answered. But when she finally arrived in the world, and her parents celebrated the birth of their first child, a son they proudly named Rohan, the stage was set. I had, from very, very young age, recognised that there was something different about me I just knew that I felt different about girl things versus boy things. I had a boy's body and a boy's bits and I didn't know anything about there being other options than being a boy or a girl. I was a wee bit too young to really understand what it was. As I got older they evolved into a definite feeling that I wanted to be or preferred to be a girl. But I kind of worked out in my own little head somehow that that was an area of danger and boy stuff was an area of safety and I would just studiously avoid that and stick to the boy stuff. Growing up on the outskirts of Auckland in the 1970s, life for young Rohan was in many ways idyllic. He had three younger siblings, two open-minded parents and acres and acres of land to roam around on. I grew up in a household and an environment where there wasn't any overt pressure to conform, in fact quite the opposite. For the era were probably freer than most if anything but i tended to throw myself into the boyish activities so you know if we were jumping off the roof of the house i'd be jumping off the roof of the house bikes skateboards go-karts playing rugby on the playing field in the middle of winter and coming back into class covered in mud but beneath all the boysy stuff much more complicated stuff was going on Stuff that Rohan instinctively knew had to remain secret. I was, I suppose, about eight. My nana owned a drapery shop. 
But that meant there was quite a lot of girls' stuff around stored in the wardrobes at her house and stuff like that. And I discovered that stuff and, and would shut the door and start trying out some of that stuff. It just makes you feel comfortable. There's nothing sexual about it at all. You just feel freer and more relaxed. And I know it's, it's sort of trite. It's just clothes. But it's what the clothes mean to you, I think, is that it's a physical, tangible part of the identity that you actually are feeling you need to express. These brief periods of just sort of being able to relax and feel like I was myself and being free. It was a release from the cage that I was in the rest of the time. But it's very stressful because you're worried about being found out. My brother walked in when I was... Um, trying on some stuff once. I think it was a leather skirt. It was just sheer, sheer unadulterated panic. I acted surprised and gabbled off the first excuse that came to my mind. Said I thought it was cowboy chaps. I wondered for years if he'd actually just figured out what was going on and kept his mouth shut, but it uh, turns out he never, never cottoned on. The years rolled by and Rohan kept his secret cross-dressing whenever he had the privacy. Basically stolen moments of sort of living the way that I felt comfortable and then having to put that away and go back to being me. It was a bit of playing around with wigs at different stages, just for the sort of sensation of having long hair. Bit of mucking around with makeup when I could get my hands on it. Just making the most of whatever was available really I think in the earlier stages. I had a wee stash by the teenage years. I'd acquire cast-offs and stash them. The other thing you go through um, is you periodically have a purge and get rid of all of that stuff and resolve to never do it again you know and then the next time you start from square one again. And feeling regret that you'd actually acquired more stuff and started again. It was just a constant cycle. It took a very, very long time to even admit to myself that that was who I was. You, you've learnt about what it is, and you're seeing that in yourself, and you're starting to think, oh, yeah, you know what, I'm going to have to face up to this one day. But you're looking at it as just an impossible thing. There's the consequences for coming out. There's the, how would I ever pass as a woman anyway? You just can't see the future past. When Rohan was around 17, the movie Jules Dahl screened on TV. The 1985 film, featuring a young Georgina Beyer, is about a drag queen and her transgender friend. It was kind of like a kid looking through the windows of a candy shop. There are two main characters, Georgina Beyer's character, and she's taken under her wing another transgender person who was just at the very beginning of the process, so basically a guy. Um, who looks like a guy um, dressing in women's clothes and they run around and get up to stuff together and, and I kind of, I wanted to be like Georgina but I realistically, in my mind, saw myself as being more like the other character who was you know, pretty much an ugly duckling and so I just thought, well, you know, I can't, I can't see myself being that way I'll just stick to being a boy I hoped, prayed, uh, wished that it would go away. One of the dreads I had was I'd kind of get to 60 or 70 years old and 
has happened to one poor individual that I'd heard about was found dead in the garage dressed from head to toe in women's gear nobody knew uh, until that point I had a horrible fear that that was going to be my fate but you just bury it the power of the human mind to live in denial is quite extraordinary I was in total denial and when I say total denial you know I knew that I'd cross-dressed this many times in my life but my mindset and day-to-day life completely pushed that into the depths where it belonged until the next time it, it came out and then I'd deal with that and then I'd push it back down and, and carry on. I used to live with a wall between me and the rest of the world and I could never drop that wall because the fear was that if I relaxed and dropped my guard at any time someone might find out the truth and then it would all be over. The war became a problem when Rohan left school and dabbled in acting. He showed promise and was taken on by a talent agent, but... I developed this fear that throwing myself into a role when I was actually already playing a role meant that I was going one step further away from myself and I tended to kind of feel I was getting a bit lost. Instead, at the age of 24, he joined the police. Part of the subconscious motivation was it was respectable and uh, it was a persona that was as far away from being a tranny as you could kind of get. You'd be out there patrolling or responding to emergency calls and getting involved in pursuits and rushing to jobs where the offenders were still present and, and having fights and dead bodies, all of that cop stuff. There was a time when when a guy did actually try to kill me. He had me on my back with his hands around my throat in the back of a dark side street at night. Strangling someone manually is actually quite difficult and he really wasn't being effective. So I was actually taunting him while I bashed him as hard as I could in the head with my torch, which was the only thing I'd managed to reach to hit him with. So I was whacking away with the torch and a member of the public came out to see what the disturbance was and I called on the person to help me and between us we managed to get him under control and get him handcuffed. Both the police and I have evolved considerably over the last 20 years and uh, yeah it was very much but I was throwing myself into that. In fact some family members, my mother included, have said they felt like they lost their sensitive artistic son slash friend and I became some sort of thug. And I think that's probably a fair assessment from their point of view, but I was loving it. It was in his role as a police officer that Rohan came into contact with the trans community for the first time, usually when a trans person had broken the law. They fascinated me. They utterly fascinated me. I didn't go out of my way to have dealings with them. I dealt with them in the course of my job and I was professional about it all. But nonetheless, it was constantly throwing it up in my face that he was somebody who was doing it and I wasn't. So there'd be mixed feelings about that. They kind of inspired me, to be honest, because even though their lifestyles might not have been that flash, they were being themselves, they were being who they 
were meant to be, and to some degree I was jealous. As always, he pushed it to the back of his mind. Police culture was such that he knew the real Rohan Stace would be an outcast if his secret was revealed. I didn't feel I could. I was so locked into just the assumption that it was something that had to be kept secret that you couldn't discuss with anyone else. I really lived in a state of being where life would be over if anyone found out. Competing with his private desire to live as a woman was a yearning for the white picket fence dream. And that, at least, was doable. Rohan married and had two children. He climbed the career ladder, eventually moving away from frontline policing and into the courts as a police prosecutor, all the while staying behind his wall and not letting anyone in. Not his wife, not his family. And as for friends, he didn't make them. That's something that sort of bothered me, but I just didn't feel comfortable with letting anyone in. Anyone. So I actually tended to keep apart, just because it was simpler and safer and easier. If you let your guard down, you risk somebody finding out, so it's easier to keep people at a distance. I had more to lose as time went on. I spent my whole life flip-flopping between a lot of imagining of what my life could be and then shying away from that and wishing, praying desperately that I would find some way to cut this thing out of me so I could just be a good husband and father and not have this stress, not have this other thing lurking in the background. And there's no question about it that the more I got entrenched in the life I was living, the greater the sense of potential loss were I to be discovered. I had resigned myself to the prospect of my own death or serious injury right from the beginning of my police career because there's this thing inside me that said that would be a, a suitable end, that would be a good conclusion, it would free me from all this crap. I wasn't going to be stupid or reckless or unprofessional about it, but I knew there was a good chance that my life could end with a police funeral and that would be uh, okay. In a miasma of depression, and unable to express what was really going on with him, his marriage broke down at the beginning of 2012. It was a feeling of being trapped in my life. It should have been a good life, but it wasn't. And the thing that was wrong was not the rest of my life, the thing that was wrong with me. There were a lot of good things about our relationship. It was fantastic having kids. There's a lot of good stuff going on, but I just couldn't enjoy it. You know, it just, it's like eating a delicious meal and it just tastes like ashes in your mouth. I kind of hoped something would happen. There was always in the background, I just hoped something would just happen to just resolve this, if something would just take it out of my hands, which is ultimately what did eventually happen. I had the kids for the weekend and we were getting ready to go up to the beach and I was perched my bum on the edge of the glass coffee table to just come down to their level to have a serious talk to them about stopping being dicks and getting on with getting organised because we wanted to get to the beach and the way we were going we were never going to get there. And my daughter 
came to give me a hug and I just shifted my balance on the edge of the coffee table and it broke, broke in half. My hand was sitting on the corner of the table where the glass broke off and I knew straight away that I'd cut it really badly. And it was while I was in hospital that I got a phone call from my lawyer who said he had a letter from my ex's lawyer and God bless him for this. He said, I want you to know before I read this that I've been around a fair while and this makes no difference to me. I thought, uh-oh, what's coming? And then it turned out that my ex, I'd given her the keys to lock up the house and feed the cats. And while she was doing that, she'd decided to have a look through the wardrobe, see if there's anything of hers left, and she'd found my female clothes and some notes that I'd written and was concerned about the fact that I was cross-dressing and intending to transition and wanted to review my care of the children and that we would need to have a meeting when I got out of hospital. That was a pretty low ebb. It was kind of a weird place to be. There was kind of a sense of, right, well, it's over, you know, a, a resignation. Um, But also there was a a wee bit of hope there. And it was like, okay, so from nobody knowing, from this being the biggest secret in the world, now there were people who knew about it, I wasn't on my own. And the world hadn't ended. There was still the possibility that this could be worked out and resolved and it would eventually be okay. A few months later, Ryan went back to having the kids overnight. I put lockable doors on my wardrobe um, and I undertook that I wouldn't cross-dress in front of the children, not that I was going to anyway. I'd been and seen a a psychologist and been diagnosed with gender identity disorder and he had written a report um, detailing what was going on with me and that I wasn't a risk to the children. With his counsellor, he worked through his options of where to go next. People suggest things to you, you know, maybe it's a midlife crisis. Um, Maybe maybe you're gay and it's just easier to admit being trans for you than to admit being gay. And all of those things had been suggested. I'd heard all of those things. I knew about people who'd had transition regret and all the rest of it. I didn't want to get it wrong because there's quite a lot at stake. My kids being number one. So I, I went back to square one and worked through the process with a counsellor and I'm glad I took my time and I'm glad I did it that way because there were times where I needed to have answers for people who needed them and I did actually have the answers by then, the kids in particular. Eventually, Rohan started preparing to leave his male identity in the dust. I think I've previously described the way I walked as kind of a combination of having a carrot up your ass and a broken leg. The sort of John Wayne semi-limp swagger. People from time to time used to ask me if I'd injured my leg or something, and I always wondered what they were on about. So I decided to have a little go at what I thought was kind of mincing around the place in a more feminine way, and sort of see if anyone noticed, and no one noticed. And then eventually I realised that even the way I walked as a male... It was actually a total affectation, without realising it, as part of the whole 
um, persona I'd developed for myself, my idea of what a Kiwi copper should be like, I had adopted this walk that was actually not natural at all. But I hadn't realised until I actually got rid of it. And I got rid of it. I just stopped walking that way. At that point in his transition, Rohan had never left the privacy of his home dressed as a woman. There'd been no risque sorties to bars or even cheeky trips to the shop for a bottle of milk. Privately, she was living as a woman. Publicly, she wasn't. Then, in 2015, two years after her secret was discovered, it was time to make the leap. He was no longer Rohan. She was Rona. She didn't realise until much later that the new name she had chosen was an anagram of her old name, a simple rearrangement of letters that echoed the rearrangement of her life. Before coming out as Rona, however, she had some explaining to do at work. I had been letting my hair grow out for quite a while and I was trying to have to explain why my nails had gotten a bit longer and why my hair was longer and that had ended up having to come out to a couple of people in management to let them know. Her bosses were supportive, something two decades earlier, when she first joined the police, she believed would never be possible. No way. No way, no how, never. Right up until the point actually where things came to a head and, and it was out and I had to deal with it. Um, right up to that point, I did not see that as a viable option. And when it came to the people she worked alongside of every day, her fellow police prosecutors, she decided to trust that they were fundamentally decent people who would at least be understanding. Although even then, introducing yourself to your colleagues as a woman, when they've only ever known you as a bloke, takes a bit of planning, not to mention guts. Rona lives on a lifestyle block, with a goat, some cats and a bunch of chickens, and she often takes her extra free-range eggs into work for her colleagues. Before making her grand debut as a trans woman, she took a couple of weeks leave, then a few days before she was due to return. I went to the Wednesday staff meeting and I told my work group that I'd be starting on Monday as Rona and all the rest of it, and then said, has anyone got any questions? And without missing a beat, um, my friend Seamus just straight up and said, do we still get the eggs? <laughs> and we just all collapsed in laughter and, um, you know, that said it all. And I think it must have summed it up for everyone else in the room that as far as they were concerned, OK, that's who you are, but life goes on and uh, we'll, we'll just carry on normal. If anyone had any negative views they were at least sufficiently decent and professional enough not to not to say anything negative about it. By far and away the majority of people were actually bloody good about it. A few days later on her first day at work as Rona she put on a female police uniform which is not much different from a male uniform and also a bit of tinted moisturiser, a bit of lip gloss I had my lashes and brows tinted by that stage and a couple of hair clips and uh, off to work I went. I had been on hormones for a while and developed a little bit of a bust, but not much, uh, but otherwise it was straight into it and on with it and it was 
a little bit weird, but at the same time, really not that different. It was surprisingly just another Monday. It was a bit of getting used to the proper pronouns <laughs> and the new name and a lot of apologies and me going, no, 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 it's taken me 45 years to get my head around it. You know, I can probably give you a wee bit of time. For her first month, she was based in the office. If I got any feedback at all, it tended to be along the lines of, you know, good on you. Um, good on you for doing that. Good on you for being your real self. And, you know, one colleague I started the job with, you know, had a phone call and, you know, he made it quite clear that as far as he was concerned, I was a good person and a good cop and it made no damn difference to him whatsoever and he just wanted me to know that. So... That's kind of how it rolled out. So I had a month in the office and by that stage news had sort of worked its way out wider and and I started going back to court. And same thing again from the court staff, the judges, the, the lawyers that I deal with on a daily basis. They were all just good as gold. Probably the bigger one was actually at the end of my first week at work, getting to the weekend. And it was all very well being Rona at work, but now I was Rona full-time. There was no mucking around going back. You, you're out, you need to get on with it. And so the, actually probably the bigger challenge, probably because I hadn't sort of foreseen it as much, was that Saturday morning I needed to get up and go out and do a few errands, which meant dealing with people as Rona for the first time. And that was probably more a case of screwing up your nerve, taking a big deep breath, pulling up your big girl panties and getting on with it than the first day at work was. Because work was kind of a protected environment and now it's the big wide world. So I did, I just, that's what I had to do. I just put on something nice and appropriate and did my hair and makeup and rocked out into the world and had a crack at it. The first place I stopped was the rural supply store at Dairy Flat. So I breezed in there all full of bravado and asked for a couple of bags of chook feed and all the rest of it and paid for it and was thinking, I'm getting away with this. And then the young guy at the counter says, oh, would you like me to put that in the car for you? And without thinking, I said, no, I'll be right, because that's when he looked at me like the penny had suddenly dropped. And he thought, that's not, that's not how a girl would answer that. <laughs> You've got to let people do stuff for you now. And um, anyway, he put the stuff in the car for me and I carried on with my chores. I thought, right, lesson number one, tick. It gets easier every day. Somewhere in that, you're able to, to drop the last vestiges of the old male you progressively over time. It just becomes easier and easier, but it's bloody tough to start with. It would be nice if that was the end of Rona's metamorphosis, but there was more to come. For her entire life, her gender identity disorder had caused stifling depression. While the stress of having to hide behind her wall had gone, transitioning had brought with it a whole new emotional storm that left her feeling suicidal. It's a common experience within the trans community and one that, sadly, a huge percentage succumbed to. There was a period of time where I was up and down and all over the place, but then there was about a week at the end of that where I, I really smashed through it all. It was a very 
tough week, but I came out of it by the end of the week thinking, you know what, I've beaten this thing. And it was a weird feeling because I'd been through ups and downs before and it didn't feel like the ups so much as it felt like a more level, calm place. And it was kind of weird. I didn't really understand it and I didn't quite believe it. I saw my counsellor shortly afterwards and he said you've been fighting all your life and actually you've won and you can stop fighting and I said that's it that's exactly what it feels like I'm trying to get my head around the fact that I don't have to fight anymore I could relax it was like a soldier who's been at war for years coming home and having to adjust to peacetime In November 2017, Rona flew to Thailand for gender reassignment surgery. It was her final major hurdle to having her body aligned with how she felt on the inside. She needed a stiff drink at the airport bar to steady her nerves and hated the thought of being away from her kids for three weeks. But she also knew she was one of the lucky ones. She could afford to pay for the surgery herself. For those who can't, the waiting list for government-funded surgery is decades long. I didn't particularly like having a male body. I wouldn't go so far as to say I hated my penis. It wasn't his fault. But I didn't like what I, what I wasn't. I bawled my eyes out all the way to the operating theatre. I was still clutching a tissue when they knocked me out. The whole, you know, what have I done? Am I doing the right thing? You know, I was also worried that, you know, major surgery is major surgery. You may not survive it and the kids will miss me and all of that sort of stuff if I don't come home. She woke up a whole new woman with a novel idea about what to do with the gonads she no longer needed. I kind of jokingly um, suggested that um, maybe I should ask to bring them home as a souvenir and then I could put them on my desk and if there's anyone I felt needed them I could offer to loan them to them. <laughs> I wasn't for the record suggesting that there are police staff who need to grow a pair of balls. I was it was just more generally there are people in your life who you sometimes say, listen mate, you just gotta grow a pair and get on with it. It was just literally, you know, like and here's some if you want them <laughs> um, but at the end of the day Imagine trying to get that through MAF at the airport. Uh, not to mention, ooh, <laughs> yeah, but it would have been bloody funny. As she recovered back home in Auckland, Rona counted her blessings that she'd dealt with a lot of her issues before her operation. One of the risks for a lot of for trans people is they don't deal with the emotional and psychological stuff first and sort of pin their hopes on surgery being the magic pill and they find that it's not that I think goes in some way to explain why suicide rates don't actually change much between pre and post-op transsexuals what's more important is the work you do on actually coming to terms with who you are and accepting who you are and 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 being realistic about where you're going to get to no one's going to wave a magic wand and suddenly you're a girl and always been a girl You'll always have a history, you'll always have where you came from, and you will never quite fully be female. You have to come to terms with the fact that 
you can do everything you can to make yourself as comfortable as possible and then that's pretty much it. A year down the track from her surgery, Rona says she still encounters emotional potholes, although they're fewer and more far between. And she's been through a grieving process for the huge chunk of her life she spent behind her wall, not daring to be her true self. I felt that I had been robbed of a lot of potential. The, the, the self-doubt and the depression and things had stopped me from actually getting stuck in and going 100%. But I make the point nobody put me in the closet. Uh, I put myself in there. I had a look around and I looked at the options and I said, oh, you better stay in here, mate. Um, and managed to keep myself in there quite successfully for a long period of time. I'm a lot happier with the person I am now. And I have more friends, female friends. <laughs> One of whom who sort of discovered me as a friend, she's in the job too, she said, you know, I never saw Rohan as somebody I'd be friends with, but I like being friends with you. I'm really the same person, but without the baggage. The, the good parts of me are, are able to have more free reign now that they're, they're not being reined in by this prison that I put myself in. The willingness to accept her for who she is, says Rona, is a sign of just how far the police have come in the past few years. Now she's working to stretch that change even further. My only experience with the trans community in my life had been professionally locking them up for shoplifting or soliciting or disorderly behaviour or drug offences. It's not exactly the most positive set of role models. So if you consider that's the exposure most of my colleagues would have had to the trans community as well, uh, obviously there's a certain perception that's going to exist. And people suddenly had to reevaluate that perception because the strength of evidence they had was that this person is a colleague and a mate and a good cop. My very existence challenges a lot of preconceptions on both sides of the discussion with the police and society at large, but also with the trans community and any feelings they may have about the police. I kind of contradict all of that just by existing. A colleague of mine told me off for referring to myself as a tranny. And I said, why? He says, you're not a tranny. And I said, well, yes, I am. <laughs> Because that's a negative term. It's not a, you know, it's not an appropriate thing to call trans people these days, and it does originate from the sex industry. But that has been people's primary impression of the trans community. And my whole point was, if you're saying I'm not a tranny, then you have to reevaluate how you look at those people you've previously looked at in that way as well, because I'm them and they're me. And I'm in a police uniform and respected. They deserve the same respect. I think I'm a better prosecutor now. Better cop and a better prosecutor. Because of what I've been through and because of the understanding and insight that it's given me. As a prosecutor, Rona doesn't do any frontline policing these days. She appears in court in her uniform with her hair tied back, a little makeup, and understated two-inch heels. The other day, however, she was in Auckland's North Shore District Court when an offender in custody made a break for it. 
He bolted, you know, it was a cop thing. I realised what was going on straight away and I just reacted. The court was packed at the time. I just clicked into pursuit mode and took off after him and the jailer who was chasing him. We knocked him over. I left him to the jailer and the security, court security guy, and wandered back into court to carry on prosecuting. And someone assumed that I'd lost him and said, oh, you would have been able to run faster if you weren't wearing those heels. I said, I bloody caught him, you cheeky bitch. (laughs) She's discovered baking, something her old self would never have bothered with, and poetry too. Haikus are her specialty. The way Rona describes herself before her secret was discovered, you get the impression she wasn't much fun. She was, by her own admission, uptight, a little resentful, kind of grumpy, but not anymore. I just really have far more capacity to engage emotionally than I used to have. Oh, the highs and the lows, you know, I cry more. But that's good, that's healthy, and I laugh more. What I can look forward to now is a normal life, or as close as possible to a normal life. A life without living with a big secret. A life without second-guessing everything you do. A life without keeping people at arm's length. Um, just a normal a normal life. Well, I feel like I've been given a second go, and that, um, and that I just want to be able to keep doing what I'm doing for as long as I can do it and enjoying it this time around, enjoying it much more this time around. You've been listening to The Lip. I'm Megan McChesney. A few weeks after our chat, Rona marked a milestone birthday, the Big Five O. And after spending so much of her life hiding behind her wall, there's no doubt that the next chapter of her life is going to be very different. Thanks, Rona, for sharing your story. And now a bit more about the change of plan for The Lip. Going forward, this podcast is moving to a seasonal format. What that means is, instead of releasing a new episode each month or so, stories will be released each week for the length of the season. The new season will be out sometime in the second half of 2019, so don't unsubscribe from your feed or stop checking in. More stories are on their way, I promise. Over the past two years, making the lips been a wonderful experience, and I've been touched by the feedback from you, the listeners, who've responded with empathy and compassion to the huge range of stories that have been told. The reason I'm changing the way I do things now is that I produce every part of the lip myself. From finding the stories and interviewing our wonderful storytellers to editing and laying down the music. And each episode's weeks in the making. I really wanted to find a way to keep the lip going, while at the same time having enough time to earn a living. Moving to a seasonal format, I think, is how I can do this, and I hope you'll stay with me. The best way of staying in touch with the lip, if you haven't already, is to subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. It's easy, of course, and it's free, and it means new episodes will drop onto your phone the moment they're released. You can also keep up with what's happening on The Lip's Facebook page and, of course, the website, thelippodcast.kiwi. On both those places, I'll keep you updated about what's going on. I'm really looking forward to catching up with you next year with more extraordinary stories. And in the meantime, wherever you are, have a great holiday season. (laughs) 